One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to the History of England. Episode 123, Wycliffe and the Lollards. Last week, we'd got Wycliffe's career to 1380. He's still at Oxford, still Doctor of Theology, but against him his enemies are assembling and organising. This week, we'll get to the end of Wycliffe's life and talk about the people he inspired. We'll also hear about the first Bible in the English language and why the concept of an English Bible was so radical, or even worth doing. First of all, just a quick recap about Wycliffe's main teachings. Here's a simple list of the medieval holy cows that he challenged. 1. The Church had forfeited its rights to wealth and power through its corruption, and the Crown should take them all back. 2. There is no support in the scriptures for all those bishops and the bloated infrastructure of the medieval church. It should all go. 3. The Pope should model himself on Christ and live according to his model, if he wanted to have any moral authority. As it is, he could be described as the Antichrist, which is not a good position for a Pope to be in. 4. The principle of transubstantiation, as taught by the Church, was deeply hooky, although the objection is completely incomprehensible. 5. The Bible is the only reliable reference point for Christians since it's the Word of God. And 6. Priests cannot know if they are saved and therefore have no special powers or moral authority. They are simply there to guide through their learning. All of this was revolutionary, a challenge to the very existence of the Catholic Church, its wealth and mystique. It was doubly dangerous because it keyed in to some of the major changes in religion in the 14th century, the emergence of lay literacy, the access and interest in scripture and the growth of individual interpretation. Now, William Barton had once been a friend of Wycliffe a fellow of Merton College at the same time. But now his energies were diverted into bringing his former friend down. He had already strenuously worked against Wycliffe in disputation about his ideas. It seems quite possible that there's a personal animosity here, not just a difference of opinion, but whether that's true or not, Barton saw Wycliffe as bringing danger and dishonour to Oxford University. So once Barton was Chancellor, he was determined to stop him. Barton realised that his history of argument against Wycliffe gave him a presentational issue, so he put together a committee to rule on the issue. Wycliffe was predictably vitriolic. The devil has invented a new art, deficient in argument, but in order to make it more colourful, he has brought together six or seven who are jealous of the truth into a conclave and they make the truth that displeases them into heresy. 
in May 1381, the committee ruled by the slimmest of majorities that Wycliffe's teachings were heretical and should be banned from Oxford. They didn't mention Wycliffe by name, but it was obviously aimed at him, and they sent their decision to Archbishop Sudbury. Wycliffe was no diplomat or politician. Initially, he raged against the ruling, refused to stop teaching, and appealed to the king. But his old patron, John of Gaunt, took the trouble to come down to Oxford and talk to him. And he seems to have explained the realities and practicalities of life to his old protégé. And from that moment, no more is heard of Wycliffe at Oxford. Very wisely, Wycliffe retreated to the parish living he held at Lutterworth in Leicestershire. Gaunt at least recognised that the establishment had now closed ranks against Wycliffe, his time was past, and he was no longer safe in Oxford. In the last few years of his life, Wycliffe sat in Lutterworth giving vent to his fury in his writings. He suffered a stroke in 1382, and then another which killed him at the end of 1384. It's possible to read Wycliffe in many different ways. A long tradition has him as the archetypical religious prophet and reformer calling for reform. There's little doubt that Wycliffe wasn't playing. He believed he wanted better for the medieval church. But second, Wycliffe can be seen as just a disappointed careerist. He'd seen the start of a lucrative career. He'd had his visit to Bruges and his commissions from the crown. He'd had his first living given to him. And then it had all stopped and the result embittered him and drove him to vent his frustration on the hierarchy that had turned their back on him. My own view, which again you should take for what it's worth, i.e. the opinion of a bloke in a shed, is the third interpretation. That Wycliffe was primarily an academic, a thinker, and that was what drove him. In the atmosphere of Oxford he argued and studied and wrote, he had a powerful but inflexible mind, sensitive to criticism like many academics, since it's not an easy world, and before he knew it, he was a religious radical. There's no evidence whatsoever that he ever tried to create a movement behind his argument. He was just telling the truth as he saw it, inconvenient or not. Courtney and later archbishops of Canterbury like Arundel pretty much squished Wycliffe's teachings from an academic point of view. Most of Wycliffe's original followers in Oxford were suspended until they had recanted, as opposed to the modern Oxford scholar, who I understand spend most of their time decanting. The general consensus is that Wycliffe's failure is complete, but there were signs that his ideas continued to be discussed in academic circles. The odd reference pops up from time to time. A bit like the way mould appears in apparently perfectly sterile environments, whatever you seem to do. Just when you're about to pop that slice of bread into the toaster, there's a spot there. But anyway, I digress. Who mentioned toast? So Wycliffe and his academic followers were given a whopping. But hate it or loathe it, although Wycliffe does not appear to have set out to create a movement, create a movement he jolly well did. Together, Wycliffe's writings form the most concerted attack on the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, and they lit some fires. As it happens, they deeply influenced a man called Jan Hus, 
and through him would have an enormous impact in Bohemia. I really need to tell that story sometime. In brief, although Hus would be burned at the stake for heresy in 1405, Bohemia was to fight off five separate crusades, and by the end of the 15th century, 90% of their population was non-Catholic. In England, there were people around Wycliffe who thought his ideas were worth sharing and worth living by. They became known as the Lollards which is an odd word, and may well in fact be a term of abuse, poor lambs. The most commonly accepted explanation is that it comes from the Dutch word meaning to mumble, which doesn't sound terribly complimentary. Wycliffe's teachings emphasise the primacy of the word of God as represented in the Bible, rather than the layers and layers of stuff that man had laid on it. Church, dogma, priests, mass, all that jazz there was an enthusiastic following for preaching. The friars in particular were often superb preachers who drew huge crowds. And so Lollards appear on preaching tours, not just in Oxford, but in many parts of the country. They focused in the Midlands and the counties bordering on the Thames initially. There's a nice map on Wikipedia, which I've put on the History of England website, showing the spread of Lollardy. But this passion for preaching the word of God helped it spread. There survives a complete liturgical cycle of Lollard's sermons, surviving in 31 separate manuscripts, which suggests that it was pretty widespread, and speaks of an active community of Lollard preachers sharing ideas and working to spread the faith. In the last decade of the century, and into the 15th, Lollardy was being preached by chaplains and unbeneficed priests, whose rustic dress and personal austerity made them the rivals and enemies of the friars. And alongside that, a series of treatises and broadsheets appeared, attacking the structure, doctrine and practice of the Catholic Church. Wycliffe had emphasised a direct relationship between the individual and God without a priest getting in the way. Throughout the 14th century, the increasing literacy of the laity had fed a passion for reading glosses and interpretations of the Bible. And so again, Lollardy fed an existing and growing passion, which increased its appeal. Maybe the biggest and simplest reason why the Lollard heresy spread in a country that had until now been deeply compliant was anti-clericalism. It was often a bit difficult not to be anti-clerical, after all, even the friars were now enormously wealthy. Despite the original vision, they had, of course, put together some convenient theory to explain how they could keep all those lovely donations and be wealthy as an institution, if not as individuals. Then, politically, there was the constant struggle with the papacy and the argument about the papal rights of taxation in England. So this meant that Lollardy began to get a look-in among a small group of nobles at court and without that kind of support, the heresy had no future. There's some evidence to suggest that one centre of this support was the Black Prince's household and his wife Joan. There was a ripple of radicalism about the Prince, with his enthusiastic love of the Trinity. But there was more than a ripple of anti-clericalism, there was a wave, a blizzard, a tsunami of anti-clericalism coming from the household. And so you get the appearance of the seven so-called Lollard Knights, named by the worried, usually religious, chroniclers. 
the knights formed a discreet and close-knit group of men, and several of them had passed into Richard's service through the household of Edward III and the Black Prince. Now, the attitude of Richard himself is interesting here. It meant that as a boy he was surrounded by a radical religious atmosphere. And it probably explains the less than vicious attempts to suppress the heresy initially, but Richard's basic attitudes were to change. The trouble was, there were also lots of reasons why Lollardy was stuffed as a movement. Firstly, a bit like the No campaign in Scotland at the moment, it was mainly negative. Lollardy used the language of dissent. We don't like this, we don't like that, this sucks. There was without doubt the kernel of a new religion in there, but under the pressure of suppression, it never had the light to develop and grow and find its own identity. Secondly, it all happened at a really bad time. There is no evidence whatsoever that Wycliffe was connected with the Peasants' Revolt, although there were attempts to link him later. But it put the wind up everyone. Everyone was now petrified of anything that didn't look like business as usual. Richard was faced with chaos, and any radical ideas he had in his breast died. Increasingly, Richard is about compliance to the word of the king, and compliance to the word of the king meant compliance also to his church. Compliance meant compliance in everything. So he threw off any kind of radicalism inherent in his upbringing and became deeply, deeply orthodox. As far as Richard and his successors are concerned, Lollardy was far too anarchic to be any use to them. And then apart from a few Lollard knights at court, Lollardy failed comprehensively to win the support of the gentry, and so it got no protection to help sell its creed and flourish and grow. During the reign of Richard, repression is relatively English and genteel. As we've seen, its academic leaders in Oxford are persuaded to recant, so that Lollardy is robbed of its thinkers and intellectual leaders. In addition, a series of Catholic thinkers produced a series of writings hitting back at the Wycliffe heresies. In 1395, at Parliament, a paper called Twelve Conclusions of the Lollards was posted on the Westminster Door, a Lollard political tract calling for reform. This had the opposite effect to the one intended. It encouraged Richard to clamp down on known Lollards, and the Lollard knights in particular. Some were imprisoned, some expelled from court, all were marginalised. It's not until the 15th century that things really start heating up, literally, in terms of the burning of heretics. But already by the end of Richard's reign, Lollardy is a minor movement, gaining currency only around the activities of individual preachers. Without real political and social support, it was already finding it difficult to compete with Catholicism, so deeply embedded into daily life. We'll come back to the story of the Lollards in future episodes, I have no doubt, but before we leave them, we should talk about one of its monumental achievements, the first Bible in the English language. Wycliffe and his friends believed passionately that the scripture was the only real reliable authority. Wycliffe himself wrote, Were there a hundred popes, and all the friars turned to cardinals. Their opinion on faith should not be accepted, except in so far as they are founded on scripture itself. 
So what could be more important than making the Word of God available in a language that everyone understood? The only versions of the Bible at the moment were in Latin and, of course, Hebrew. Latin was just all part of maintaining the power and authority of the priesthood because only the priests had brains large enough to understand the language. There were translations of parts of the Bible as the text for sermons, but all of that was mediated by the church and by the priest. It used to be thought that Wycliffe himself was involved in writing the English language version of the Bible, but all agree that this is actually very unlikely. In fact, it was probably done by a group of his followers at Queen's College in Oxford. There is, however, no doubt about the fact that the task that they had set themselves was enormous. There's a preface to the Bible which explains the process they went through. So they started with the official Latin Vulgate Bible, creating a word-by-word translation which seems to have been done by 1397. But it really didn't read very well. So this early version was replaced by a later version, where they translated for the sense of the whole sentence. Separate glosses were then produced to support the text. There are two main points to make about the Wycliffe English Bible. Firstly, it was essentially orthodox. And with the associated glosses, it was scholarly and unbiased. It became used by people whose reputation and background put it above suspicion. The second point is that it was amazingly successful. It's often ignored in the story of the creation of a vernacular Bible. The later Bible of Tyndale gets all the credit and all the fanfare and all the attention. This is probably because Wycliffe's Bible was translated from the Latin rather than from the original Hebrew, but nonetheless its influence was absolutely enormous. There are over 250 copies that survive in various versions, which is an amazing indication of its popularity at the time. However, although they took a while to react, the church didn't like it. They did not like it one little bit. Their view was that theology was solely for priests, and the laity should receive the faith through sermons. They thought the laity should stay out of learning and education. And here's a quote that neatly sums it up. The writer is complaining that the English Bible has made the scriptures more open to the teachings of laymen and women. This, the jewel of clerics, is turned to the sport of the laity and the pearl of the gospel is scattered abroad and trodden underfoot by swine. They were slightly horrified also at the thought of using a vulgar and unstructured language like English. But for the moment the Bible was out there and it spread. But there would be a reaction from the church in due course. For the rest of the 14th century, after Wycliffe's death, Lollardy spread. But it remained restricted to a relatively confined number of areas. It had been suppressed mainly in academia, it was frowned on everywhere, and priests were made to recant where they were found. But suppression was relatively unenergetic, and underground, Lollardy survived. As it went underground, it changed from Wycliffe's original concept in some ways. So Wycliffe's stand on transubstantiation, for example, was clearly just way too complicated 
for anyone with a brain smaller than a planet to understand. And so the Lollards basically said that the whole idea of transubstantiation was a fraud. That Christ's body was not present, it was just a symbol. The Lollards began to tech again the idea of all images, and these are some of the attributes that resurfaced in the Reformation. So for the moment, Lollardy was out there, but with the political instability at the start of the 15th century, attitudes would harden. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Now then, given that we've introduced the subject of the English Bible, it seems like a perfect opportunity to talk a bit about where we are with the English language, does it not? So, we talked about the English language and the impact of the conquest ages and ages ago. To cut a long story short, French had become the language of the ruling class and everything else that counted. Law, court, literature, any conversation involving the boss. And at the same time, English was in something of a mess i.e. there were so many dialects that someone from the northeast was even less able to understand someone from Surbiton than they are now. So there's a thing. So French was a lingua franca, one language everyone could understand and use, which heavily delayed the resurgence of English. As we said back then, whenever it was, the amazing thing about the use of English is not that it fought back and eventually recovered its position, but that it took so blessed long to do so, given that French was the native language of a very small percentage of the population. However, it's clear that in the 12th century English was nowhere. The only written stuff in English that comes down to us is religious, the kind of glosses used to educate the ordinary man in the mysteries of the church. The start of the fight back came courtesy of King John, and the loss of Normandy, since many lords now suddenly had no landed connection with France. Obviously, connections were still very strong, 
but there are clear signs that even by William the Marshal's day, the kind of French spoken in England was becoming quaint, provincial, archaic, NQOCD, as far as the French were concerned. So, you might have thought that during the 13th century, there would be a big fight back for the English language. But that doesn't really happen, for a number of reasons. The court stays resolutely French in character. Henry III imports a new wave of Frenchmen from Savoy and so on into the nobility of England. And meanwhile, Paris was without doubt the cultural centre of Europe. Everyone wanted to sound like the Parisians, even if they weren't Parisian. But in the background, actually changes were going on. As the century wore on, French was becoming less a mother tongue for the nobility and more of a language of culture, an aspiration rather than a fact of life. At this time, there is a particularly large flood of French words into the English language, a flood of borrowed words. Now, I guess you are naively thinking that this would be a sign of weakness, English-wise, that having to use French words. But you would be wrong to suppose such a thing. In fact, what it meant was that more people were now speaking English and therefore bringing their French words with them. Don't get me wrong, in the 13th century, the nobility speak French. It was used in the law courts, in treatises on husbandry, in Parliament, in parliamentary bills and petitions. But as one commentator has shown, those bills and petitions clearly show a clumsiness with the use of French that show that it was no longer the mother tongue. It was a learnt language. And to back this up, we now begin to see primers appearing in French. So there's a book written by one Walter of Bibsworth, showing how to teach French to children, which, quote, every gentleman ought to know. Now that's a significant line. The significance is that French is being treated as a second language, not as a native language. Some other language somewhere was being used as the native language, as the mother tongue. There are other straws in the wind. The provisions of Oxford, if you remember, were written in English. There are regulations in the Westminster Monastery forbidding novices to use English, which suggests that that's exactly what they're doing. In 1332, there is a decree by Parliament, according to Foissard, which says... All lords, barons, knights, and honest men of good towns should exercise care and diligence to teach their children the French language, in order that they may be more able and better equipped in their wards. Again, that strongly suggests there's a problem with the use of French. It's having to be propped up by legislation, for crying aloud. And the pressures towards English kept mounting. The Hundred Years' War emphasises the animosity between French and English. And the growth of the middle class in towns also promoted people who naturally spoke English into positions of influence and ate away at French's position as the language of power. In the 14th century, all this gathers pace. So here's a quote from 1325. I believe that no one can speak Latin except those who have taken it at school. And some who are accustomed to the court and live there know French 
and know Latin. And some whose grasp of French is shaky know a bit of Latin. And some understand English well who know neither Latin nor French. But educated and uneducated, old and young, they all understand the English tongue. Aha! And then in 1362 comes Edward III's law that English will be the language of the courts. And then, of course, we get literature written in English. Now, this is real acceptance. Crude and vulgar English is now beginning to be acceptable as a written language. The English Bible, Chaucer, Langland, Gower, and the unknown author of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and the poem Pearl. Now, as a man utterly without sensitivity and soul, without a poetic or spiritual bone in my body, may I say that the discovery that struck me most was not Chaucer, which makes me want to eat my liver, but a poem called Pearl. It's a poem probably written by the same author as the more famous Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and I have to say I thought it was so lovely that I'm going to attempt a bit of Middle English. Here we go. Pearl pleasant to Princess Paya, to clanny claws in gold or so clara, out of Orient I hardly say ye, ne proved I her precious pera. So round, so reckon in Uchtareya, so small, so smooth her ciders wearer. Wheresoever I judged Gemus Gaya, I set her singly in singlera. Alas, I lest her in on erbera. Through gresser to grunder hit fro me yot. I dween, for doct of luftongera, of that privy pearl withouten spot. And here's a translation provided by a bloke called Bill Stanton at billstanton.co.uk, link on the website. Pearl, to delight a prince's day, flawlessly set in gold so fair, in all the east, I dare to say, I have not found one to compare. So round, so radiant in array, so small, so smooth her contours were. Wherever I judged jewels gay, I set her worth as truly rare. I lost her in a garden where, through grass, she fell to earth and plot. Wounded by love beyond repair, I mourn that pearl without a spot. So that's just the first verse. There's no denying the thing goes on a bit. But the realisation slowly grows on you that he's not talking about a jewel. He's talking about his little daughter who's died. And if any evidence were needed that despite a massive infant mortality rate, medieval men grieved the death of their children every bit as much as we do. There it is. Then, of course, there's William Langland. We know almost nothing about him personally, but it seems as though he was probably from Shropshire. His poem, Piers Plowman, we've referred to before, and it's a dream vision sort of thing that's deeply anti-clerical, searching after a return to a true religion. And so we come to Chaucer, tormentor of schoolchildren. He was a Londoner, born in 1340, son of a London vintner. He became a page of Edward III's son, Lionel, the Duke of Clarence, when he was a lad, and later served in Edward III's household. We've already heard how he was ransomed from the French. As we heard from Carrie, he married Catherine de Rouet, which linked him to Gaunt. Despite this powerful connection... 
there would have been no concept of him earning a living by writing alone, so he continued a diplomatic career. Interestingly, this led him in the 1370s to Italy and all the dazzling achievements of Italian poetry. He probably started writing just before that, though, with his first book being The Book of the Duchess, written for Gaunt's other half. He then came home, got himself a post as controller of the Petty Customs and a pad in Aldgate in London. But his fortunes weren't smooth from there. He got into debt, lost his job, got another one and ended up as Deputy Forester at Petherton in Somerset, and lovely though Somerset is, I doubt that's a job which puts you at the pinnacle of society. I could be wrong. It's a life which has plenty of ups and downs, ins and outs, and kind of helps you believe that, however painful it is reading his stuff, his stories do make sense, and the characters in them all work. He finally croaked in 1400. The Canterbury Taller were written in the last decade of his life, and they were massively popular, and reached the highest in society, despite the fact they were written in English. English was without doubt now here to stay. Chaucer himself must have chosen to write in English as a matter of policy, and he must have decided that he would reach the largest audience in that way, which tells its own story. But he was clearly nervous about it. So there's a few lines at the end of his Troilius and Cressida. Good luck, little book. And since there is such great diversity in English and the writing of our tongue, I pray to God that none miswrite you and that you be understood, God I beseech you. Chaucer would have been nervous because French was still the more normal language of literature and because English was still riven by a range of dialects. Traditionally there were four, Northern, West Midlands, East Midlands and the South, the latter covering the traditional Wessex dialect. There are very clear differences between all of these. So one quick example is in the plural form, which was different. So, for example, in the southern dialect, the plural of love was loveth. In the Midlands dialects, it was loven. And in the north, it was loves. So there are significant differences. And you'll see that in modern English, it's the northern dialect, the S, which has won out, with the odd exceptions such as children and oxen. But through the late 14th and 15th centuries, English begins to establish itself in a standard form, the same form that Chaucer uses. The fact that Chaucer used it is probably coincidental rather than the cause, because it's the London dialect. In its simplest terms, it becomes standard because this is the centre of government, and it's the place where things are being written down for the first time, as well as being the centre of influence and power. It'll be a long time before the written form acquires complete consistency. Tudor spelling, for example, is notoriously eccentric. But anyway, since it's government writing things down that causes this standardisation, it's sometimes called Chancery English, from the Chancery, the government department pouring out all those official documents. Over the centuries, English had changed. Over that period, there are massive borrowings from French mainly, but despite that, it's still English. There is apparently a rule, for those that know, that it's vocabulary that gets borrowed from other languages, not grammar. And although English grammar does change away from being an inflective language, that's not a trend caused by French. So, as I say, the biggest influx of words comes from French. 
and they're interestingly different to the kind of words that had come across earlier. So before 1250, about 900 French words get adopted into English. And they're the sort of words you'd expect to have if a new upper class came to boss you around. Words like baron, noble, dame, servant, feast, minstrel, juggler. Another big group that came in were from the dominant new church that came in with the Normans. But after 1250, the words are slightly different, because now it's the rich and famous themselves whose language is being affected. They're the ones speaking English now and borrowing from the language they once used. So the words that come across fall into a number of different groups. There are administrative and governmental words, such as crown, state, empire, authority, parliament, chancellor, treasurer, designations of nobility such as prince and duchess. Secondly, there are ecclesiastical words, sacrament, passion, legate, heresy. There's the language of law, justice, equity, judgment and crime. And there is fashion, food, that sort of thing. Robe, cloak, embellish, fur, sable, blue. There's a range of precious stones which are understandably French. Ruby, garnet, topaz, for example. And a vast array of cooking ones such as roast, boil, two pints of lager and a packet of crisps obviously joking about the last one. There are two other areas from where English borrows. It's not just French. One of them is Latin. Now, you might have thought this process would be over already years and years ago, but of course Latin remained the language of the church, and it remained very much in use. Very much because it was used by so few people, and so it seemed more controlled, more regulated, more reliable for official documentation. And quite a lot of words borrowed in this period come via the Wycliffe Bible. In fact, the Bible is credited with a thousand words not previously found in English. So these are words such as lucrative, rosary and script. And then there's one other area of borrowing from the Low Countries. Flanders was of course a very important area for trade, with very close links through the woollen and cloth industries. There was a big Flemish population in London, though rather smaller after the peasants' revolt had thinned them out a bit. And so there are a few words that creep in. Gin, Commodore, Boom, Bowsprit, Groat and Rover. In many cases, these words just push out the old English word. But of course, one of the beauties of English are the kind of almost synonyms. Words which are really close in meaning, but have a subtle nuance of different meaning. The famous ones are those which show the difference between the French nobility and English peasants. The word for animal you looked after and cleaned out is English, such as pig, sheep and cow. The meat you ate at table, wearing your finery, was French, pork, lamb and beef. But there's a lovely difference between the words skill, which is French, and craft, which is Anglo-Saxon almost synonyms. And actually, it's even richer than this if you include Latin. So you can often find synonyms at three levels. Popular, Anglo-Saxon, literary, French, and learned, Latin. So let me give you just a couple of examples. First of all, try rise, which is Anglo-Saxon, mount, which is French, 
and ascend, which is Latin. Or try ask, which is Anglo-Saxon, question, which is French, and interrogate, which is Latin. By the end of the 14th century, the story isn't quite over, but it is darned close. Richard II is the last king who is a native speaker of French. Henry IV is the first king to speak the coronation oath in English. Henry V will make a virtue of his communication in English. Basically, English was back on top. Result. So that seems to be an eminently suitable place to leave our story for a while. Next time, in a fortnight, we're going to be back to the political history. It's been a while, has it not? I'm going to crack on with the reign of Richard II and the first period of his reign following the Peasants' Revolt and watch as tension boils and builds as the character of the king is revealed. Special congratulations this week to Nancy, who correctly identified the Cronk reference. Well done, Nancy, a true literati. There was to be a prize, which could have been an all-expenses-paid tour of the shed, taking in the old biscuit trapped behind a desk, the spider colonies in the corner, the clanky heater, the cold, draughty gap under the door, and so on. Nancy, I'll let you know. Thank you to donators Cathy and Shelley, and as ever, thanks to everyone for listening and to all your comments on the History of England website, on iTunes and Facebook. Good luck, everyone, and have a great fortnight. <laughs> <laughs>